Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, October 5th, 2020. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. How are you? I'm John. I'm John. You're John. <laughs> you are John. I'm tired, apparently. You are good. It's Monday. thought I was ready to go. Had a couple of cups go. of coffee in me and right into a brick wall. First, <laughs> first sentence. Yes. Uh, another person who is John, uh, <laughs> senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, John. <laughs> Hi, John. <laughs> and uh, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. I think oh, well. I, know, I know what I know what threw Noah off because you you said how are you as a I know to, I did I know I, did, yeah. I didn't just do the I, well, I, I did, yeah it I is really the pattern yes. no blame for that one yeah we are conservatives and we believe in order and tradition and I and uh, yes this is a revolution apparently yep. I completely destabilized the commentary podcast yep I am very very ashamed. That's on brand for this week's news. Yeah, yes, <laughs> that's, that's that's very true. So, uh, speaking of that, we don't really have anything to talk about. So, I guess we can just uh, uh, call a halt and uh, come back tomorrow. All right. Uh, so, um, there are two tracks to talk about in relation to the president's uh, illness and uh, and uh, all of the ancillary positive tests of COVID that. Uh, relate apparently seem to be connected to the uh, announcement of Amy Coney Barrett as the Supreme Court Justice uh, uh, on at the White House, because uh, there is there is Trump in the White House and the Trump reaction, and then there is the general reaction uh, by the mainstream media to to the events, and they are. Very much connected. And I will mention one thing and see how you react, which is uh, Brian Stelter or somebody like that, the media critic of, uh, of, of CNN, said, uh, a doctor's first obligation is to tell the truth. And the doctor, Conley, uh, who is uh, Trump's doctor, is not telling the truth. And therefore, you know, this is a violation of his Hippocratic Oath or something like that. Doctor's obligation is not to tell the truth at a press event on the lawn at a microphone. Doctor's responsibility is to tell the truth to the patient. He is not the doctor of the country. He is the doctor of the president. And in fact, if the president were to say to him, I want you to go out and say that I'm okay, it is his obligation uh, to tell, to, to, protect the patient's confidentiality and do that as a result. Now, I don't, he was kind of weird and creepy, I thought, in the way that he handled it and was very untrustworthy. If you want to be untrustworthy in front of the American people, then go right ahead. But this, we got into this mindset that somehow uh, the, the, the medical staff treat, treating the president works is responsible first and foremost to answering the press's questions as opposed to treating the president. So um, that I think is where there could be a weird slight boomerang effect, which is that since they're all, all they do now is listen to each other on Twitter all day and all night and work themselves up into a a common lather that um, they are perilously close to 
taking this calamitous event and politically, I still believe calamitous event for the president and um, uh, jujitsuing ju- it against them and in his mild advantage. Uh, so I, I, I think that's, it's an interesting point because so a doctor's first obligation is to first do no harm, right? Towards the patient. And there was some, if you watched Conley's press conference on Saturday, I did. Um, it was very clear that he had some straightforward answers he could have given and he didn't about most notably whether or not the, the president had needed supplemental oxygen before he got to the hospital, which he later, they later admitted he did need in the White House on Friday, suggesting his condition had, had worsened rapidly. Um, and I do think that there's an – I don't blame Conley. I blame Trump because, you know, HIPAA allows for patients to tell their you – know, patients do not have to release information about themselves. But the president of the United States needs to keep the American people informed about his condition so that the American people know what's going on. Because uh, otherwise, they're, they're, the conspiracy theorizing that happened over the weekend on Twitter, you know, they were – it, it, I laughed. I, I sent on our group text to you guys. You know, the New York Times has been obsessed with QAnon, but actually, all of left Twitter was obsessed with whether or not Donald Trump had sent an image of himself writing his name on a blank sheet of paper for most of Saturday. That wasn't so even the worst of it. I the worst th- of it was the uh, his hand. They they photoshopped a portfolio right, hand, next but- to his hand because you could see the <laughs> reflection of his hand through the portfolio, and it's like. Why would they Photoshop a portfolio? What are you talking about? Because there's doubt. There's doubt about the truth when it comes to Trump, obviously. But that's doubt he's sown himself for four years, right? Yeah, and so do these doctors. I don't understand what the strategy is here. I mean, beyond the fact that the president does is watching this news conference from his room and is going to be really, really mad if you get back and tell them the extent of your condition. Why would you marshal this person who has no experience as a spinmeister going out before the press and being evasive, transparently evasive, transparently um, massaging the facts. Why? Is is the public going to somehow sour on the president because he had the reaction to this virus that everybody does or that he needs this cocktail of therapies because he needs them? I, I don't understand what the what the what they were trying to avoid here. And they created an unnecessarily bad news cycle for them out of it. Oh, I, I understand. I mean, I don't, I don't condone. I don't think what they did was right, but uh, to the extent that they that they weren't um, leveling with uh, the the public. But I understand it because they, a they they didn't want to project any un, any more weakness f- from Trump than they had to, um, because he personally doesn't like that, and and he rightfully understands that that will um, potentially hurt him at the polls and um, uh, B they, they, I think they didn't, they wanted to sort of s- stop the um, sort of dark fantasizing on, on the left, uh, on the left, I mean, by, by, by his worst uh, sort of critics and detractors about uh, how he was uh, facing certain death. I mean, but didn't that have the precise opposite effect? It just yielded to more conspiracy theorizing and this fixation with optics is the reason why he didn't he refused to wear masks for so long and why we're in this condition okay, so in the first that, place. I think ultimately is you're there's this what is their strategy? They didn't have a strategy. 
the president's illness threw them into disarray and the disarray was very evident and this is what disarray looks like so on the one hand there is that chip diller in uh, national lampoon's animal house kevin bacon standing there saying all is well all is well while while there's a riot going on or frank drebin from uh from the naked gun uh, standing there while the fireworks factory is exploding behind him saying, nothing to see here, everybody turn away, nothing to see here. Which, of course, all, you know, so so th- this was a real-life version of that. And it happens when there is an unprinted, uh, unprecedented situation. It happened, uh, you know, when Ronald Reagan got shot in March of, of 1981, if People remember uh, his, the severity of the of the injury was downplayed. Uh, Al Haig, who was the Secretary of State, came out and sounded like a, a psychopath, saying, "I'm in charge here," which he wasn't. And uh, no one knew what to do because, you know, this what had happened, which is that an unsuccessful assassination attempt had taken place. Thank God, uh, no one knew how to respond to, and they were only in the job for a couple of months anyway and here we have the president contracting uh, a, a highly contagious uh, virus that is the central news story of our of our time and they they uh, hadn't war gamed it they hadn't played it through and he of course is an inconstant and uh, erratic figure and they didn't know how he would react so that's when you get the it wasn't even the doctors the doctors aren't the issue there's this weird focus on the doctors who are not PR people. It's Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, former congressman, who comes out and says he's fine and then and then says, we're off the record, he's not fine. That was the, that was the moment at which you said, my good God, these people are, it's not even that they're amateurs, it's that they're, they're, they've, they're having a nervous breakdown in public. Like, you can't, if you think the press is going to keep your off the your your on background comments on background when you literally say what I just said to you on the record is a lie, now I'm going to tell you the truth, which is we were very concerned his oxygen level dropped and we had to get him to the hospital. Then it's like so the on the so you're telling me this on background. What I'm supposed to protect you? You're the White House chief of staff. <laughs> Very deep background. The president, yeah, maybe. I mean, keep it under your hat. Well, but it's it's a it's really an interesting turnabout, isn't it? Because there there has long been, uh, you know, there was this secret kind of handshake type relationship between the press and the presidency, and even between the press and, and leaders in Congress about not reporting on you know people's health, dementia, sex scandals. You know, we we know all this. The irony of the Trump administration thinking that it can play by this rules when it ran on blowing up the whole system is is. I mean, they're, they're kind of reaping what they sowed, right? I mean, they if the press is the enemy. You cannot have that kind of on background relationship and expect that trust to hold. I mean, it's just not going to work. Um, and it's it, I, I do. I mean, I blame Meadows, but ultimately this is Trump's responsibility. And I do think, you know, our friend Yuval has a good op-ed in The Wall Street Journal today where he notes if that if that Amy Coney Barrett uh, nomination event in the Rose Garden, which also had an indoor component, which is likely where the spreading occurred. If that was maskless and people were not required to either be fully tested and have a negative test and or wear masks, then that was reckless. And that is not what you want the leader of a country in the midst of a pandemic to be doing is to endorsing reckless behavior. And I know we've been really we've tried to be 
pretty good about, you know, calling out the hypocrisy uh, um, on both sides when it comes to mask wearing and gathering. But that's an instance where we have to Trump should be called out for that. That's not how he should be behaving. It's irresponsible. And if it led to even a single infection, he's got to be held responsible for that, regardless of whether that's where I mean, he obviously might have picked it up there, too. We're not we haven't traced it. Also, the contact tracing, which they should be doing. Um, and it's not clear that they are for his New Jersey rally and all the events where he and Hope Hicks and anyone else who tested positive was was in contact with others. So the president is the most reckless person in his administration and in American politics in general. He is a reckless person and his recklessness is part of what made it possible for him to survive his bankruptcies, to... Um, uh, you know, sort of skate this razor's edge of the tax code where he ends up, you know, essentially becoming uh, enormously rich through losing money as opposed to making money. And the recklessness that led him to figure he could maybe take this, you know, he could take this uh, long shot shot at becoming president and then becoming president. And then some of the uh, imprudence of his policies, which have scored remarkably primarily i would say the throwing up the cards in the middle east and saying enough with this you know trying to pretend like we're you know we're we're trying to be a, a you know an equal player between israel and the palestinians we're on israel's side we're going to we're going to move the embassy to jerusalem and we're going to change the this dynamic that was that's part of the recklessness the prudence that ordinary politicians display in in matters like that uh, was the reason that, like our friend Seth Mandel always used to say, no one's ever going to move the embassy to Jerusalem because the the opportunity the the you can sort of game out very easily what the consequences might be, and you couldn't game out what the benefit would be. So all things being equal, you kind of leave things static, and Trump doesn't care about leaving things static. So. All of this is the is is central to his entire way of being, and it also meant that there was this virulent virus around that he decided that he wasn't going to pay appropriate prudent heed to, and so that is the nature of the idea that somehow this has been visited upon him in a literary karmic fashion because he he bet on the possibility that his luck would hold and that his recklessness would pay positive consequences the way he believes it has all his life. And he, and the, you know, the train crashed. The run of- Not yet. He's still, he's, he's still sick. betting though. He's still, he, he yeah, well, but yeah, but he's still, but he's still, you know, sort of rolling with that. He's gambling on that. I mean, Dave is right. I mean, that's, that explains the right about, right. Yeah, there's no. He's not chastened by this experience. Well, well, well. Precisely. I I have to say, I think it's very hard to presume that we know what is going on with him or inside his head or anything like that, given the cocktail of medicines that he is on. I I mean, it's not a joke. Like uh, being pumped full of steroids, having. Uh, remdesivir and uh, dexamethylazone or whatever it's called and this co- this other cocktail and steroid you know all of this together who knows what's going on with him i mean people get you know uh people take prednisone which is 
a kind of the root steroid that you take if you're sick and your doctor thinks you need to take steroids. And then they go a little, they can go a little bananas just from prednisone. Okay. Well, they, I mean, let a, yeah, that's an, an, an anti-inflammatory, but they, the uh, steroid, I mean, it's a steroid and people do get, right. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen, you know, friends go through this and I they, mean, you know, uh, the people start bouncing off the ceiling from, from it, it's one of the reasons you can't take it for very long because a it's toxic and b it can have kind of deleterious consequences on your brain chemistry. And and Trump is on massive doses of steroids now, and God knows what effect it might be having. I'll have to go back through my posts on the website when I was taking that for a, a, <laughs> an intestinal infection and make sure it wasn't completely incoherent. Um, but I mean, the implication that you're making is a really big one, really strong one. The notion that the president is not of sound mind is a very strong implication with procedural uh, uh, out- outcomes. If we were to really but take it seriously. But we don't know. The point is that we don't know. We don't know. The president's in the hospital. He is taking a course. He's taking courses of drugs that have, you know, that have contraindications and, and have, you know, side effects and we don't know if they're having an effect on him or not because of who he is. That's part of the problem. In other words, like if Barack Obama said, I'm going to go drive and wave to my friends while he was in the hospital on all these drugs, somebody would say, hmm, maybe there's something going on with the steroids because Obama's, you know, Obama's a low affect guy, not a high affect guy. And he like wouldn't necessarily do something like that. Trump, of course, he would go drive, and if he wanted, yeah. you know. So there, there might be no real distinction between how Trump would behave if he were having some kind of a an effect from from the from the drugs he's taken, or if he's not. Right. If you assemble uh, a crowd with Trump signs anywhere, he, he wants to be there. Yeah. He'll show up. Yeah. So they, you know, there was. <laughs> This was too close yeah. to resist. So I don't know. I, I, I'm not my, – my implication is this is the reason that, you know, when a president gets a colonoscopy, uh, he will – they will often, you know, sort of like temporarily assign the powers of the presidency to the vice president because there is a extraordinarily small but nonetheless possible risk of going into some kind of a coma – from the drugs you take when you from from a routine, relatively routine routine procedure, um, and by the way, for all we know, he signed that paper. I'm I'm not kidding. How do we know he didn't sign a paper? You know, temporarily ceding the powers of the presidency to Pence. You know, on Friday, he could have. They just won't tell us. I mean that's part of the mad. So, but I think ultimately this is where where what what Abe said is right that uh, Trump strength, Trump's like monomaniacal fixation is on the idea of strength, and it's why he likes Putin. It's why he likes Erdogan. It's why he calls himself those those uh, three eight year old girls singing at the rallies in 2015 and 2016, right? who sang the song to Trump deal with strength or get, or get destroyed every time you remember, like this yeah. is, this is like a kind of uh, fixation on his part. And what is it? Why does he say sleepy Joe or low energy Jeb, or it's all supposed to be in contrast to his strength. And there's nothing that could make it could be worse than of course, looking like he was felled 
by a disease because if that's the if that's the message that he wants to beam into people's heads about who he is and keep beaming it there. I, I don't know. Virality trumps virility in this case. I mean, there's no, he can't, he, his, his sense of masculinity depending so heavily on bluster and performance is going to be the challenge for him in this last month. I mean, we've, we've talked endlessly about how the polls, if the polls are correct, he's toast already, but the question of whether he'll be able to debate and what, what physical shape he will be in for that, um, I think is going to, going to really cement his fate permanently for voters. I mean, that's what, two weeks away? But he's right. Uh, yeah, it's a week and a half away. A week and a half but, away. But yeah, I mean, this that was the easiest prediction you could have ever made is that Democrats will now treat him as though he's a radioactive entity. And that's exactly what happened over this weekend. The notion that the president can be in public anywhere is a, a menace, a threat to public health, a threat to everyone around him. Oh, not him. just him. And therefore, not just for, him. The, for the good of the country, he just has to hibernate. How about Pence? Pence is also, I kept reading, Pence should be in an undisclosed location in a bunker, uh, you know, because I'm not quite sure why. Uh, but anyway, since he keeps testing negative, or so they tell us. Um, but yeah, this idea that really for the good of, you know, uh, the country uh, and, and, and everyone around them, they should all just stop running for president, you know. I mean, no, but by the way, I, I sort of enjoy, there is something, um, uh, this kind of uh, game is one of the things that makes politics entertaining, is to see uh, what advantage people try to take of something where the piety is, well, I mean, we're not, we're just talking about people's health here. You know, it's like the Tartuffe. It's like, what Tartuffery are you going to be responsible for? What what Machiavellian game are you playing in the guise of being understanding moral and... and, and it's the new think about the yeah. children, right? Exactly. <laughs> oh, the same thing happened with uh, Amy Coney Barrett, um, which was really enjoyable because she has had COVID presumably has antibodies for it and tested negative on Friday day of and judiciary committee Democrats went out right in front of this thing and said, that's not good enough. You never know when this thing can manifest. It can take 14 days for the better, for the good of the committee, for the good of the working you know, mechanisms of the Republic here. She has to self quarantine for at least 14 days. At, meanwhile, at the same time, Joe Biden was getting on a plane to Michigan who also tested negative, but was as exposed because he was at the debate. And I don't recall hearing a single word about how he was endangering the, the health of, uh, of of Michiganders or his campaign staff or anybody else. Well, she's a Republican. <laughs> well, of course. But, I mean, just have some humility. Noah. Or don't make the charge in the first place. It's, so, it's such a naked attempt to seek advantage out of the president's say, illness, the that fun. it would be it would be sorted and uncouth if the partisan this roles were reversed. This is the fun part. the The fun part is just seeing what people throw against the wall to see what what's going to stick. Like th this is this is the fun part. Like there are two <clears throat> there are two sides of the Amy Coney Barrett story from here on, and one is she should quarantine and therefore she can't possibly have a hearing or you know be whatever. And then the other is, well, you know, there can't be a hearing uh, and there can't be a vote. Uh, so 
gee, we should just wait, wait until after the election or something like that. Um, one is ridiculous. The other is 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 entirely procedural in in this sense, which is you throw it up and you're like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess there can't really be a hearing. I mean, how can they have hearings with three senators diagnosed with COVID? Uh, uh, and how could they possibly vote and all of that? And then you, the way to look at this is the only people who are saying that are the are the Democrats who all they want to do is not have a vote. Like if there can't be a vote, there will not be a vote. I mean, if the if the rules and procedures and all that make it impossible for there to be a quorum or for there to be a sufficient number of Republicans to vote on her nomination or something like that, then there won't be a vote. That vote will not take place for another two and a half or three weeks. Um, and so that'll either happen or it won't happen. Asserting asserting it seems- its necessity uh, is ridiculous, but... It seems highly it's unlikely. Fun. It's fun. I'm, I'm just saying it's fun. Highly... It's fun. It's super fun. Um, it's highly unlikely, and because they've been having remote hearings, and the the, the back you know backstop the the fail safe strategy here is, is evidenced by the strategic geniuses at uh, Justice Democrats and people like Adam Gentleson is that you can't have a quorum if there aren't two minority members present. So Democrats should boycott the hearing, um, which would not be unprecedented, but it would be a really bad form and yield to most likely a floor vote. There's no reason why you have to have a committee hearing. In fact, it wasn't even common until the mid 20th century. And so they'll just push it through the floor vote. It's a mis- it's a misunderstanding of how desperately Republicans need this, not want it, need this. This is the fundamental proposition of the Trump presidency. This is the devil's bargain. And this is the due to which Republicans agreed to and demand. And they will get judges. it one way or the other. Judges. And they'll endure the consequences, whatever they and are. And by the way, the more that the election looks like it is slipping away from Trump and the Republicans, the more the idea is, well, let's just go out on a high here. We're going to get this third justice on the Supreme Court, and then we're going to reap the whirlwind. But at least we can go out feeling like we did this one thing in this you know, horror show of a year that will have enduring value to us and to the country as we see it, that it's like, okay, you know, we made this devil's bargain and the devil's bargain uh, has not worked out for us, but we will be able when people say, how could you have let this happen to say, uh, you know, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett. And they will be able to say it's all Democrats' fault and mean it, because it, it really is. Every recent court precedent Dems have pursued has backfired on them. The first nuclear option, they ended up regretting it in 2017. They filibustered Gorsuch for the first time since Abe Fortas and lost the Supreme Court nomination, which Reed said, Harry Reid said would happen anyway if, uh, if when in October of 2016, when it looked pretty much like they were going to take the White House, keep the White House and take, take the Senate. And then after going after Brett Kavanaugh in the most grotesque fashion imaginable, you know, there was no real precedent, uh, procedural precedent that emerged from that, but it certainly galvanized everybody on the right to say, we, we're not listening yeah, I mean, to you. You will never, there, you will never give anybody a fair shake. And so we're just, we're, yeah, you're, and so basically if the idea is, if the idea is we're, this is all going down in flames, 
the nihilism part would be fine. Let it all go down in flames, and we won't get the Supreme Court. You know, what, the hell with it. But at, le- at least, as I say, emotionally, as people watch this happening, and if uh, the more uh, cold-eyed among Republicans, which is w- what I gather from people talking over the weekend, uh, people are, it's like, we just, we got one more thing we can do here before we basically all have to, we're going into hibernation for, for two years, or we're going to be basically doing, you know, uh, you know, we're we're going to be rear guard act, you know, doing rear guard actions to kind of prevent the worst of democratic and liberal ambitions from from taking place. How how is I'm curious what you guys think? How I know I, I have a suspicion about how Pence is going to message the president's illness in the debate tomorrow night, but how is Harris going to deal with it? Because it's actually kind of tricky. Um, Biden can get away with saying, Dr. Jill and I wish him well. And, you know, he comes across as meaning it, whatever. She's really kind of bad when she tries to message empathy. And she was terrible in the primary debates. Every time she attempted to do it, it struck such a false note. So I wonder how well, I, I just, I'll be curious what you guys think she's going to say, because it's a, it, it's a challenge for any politician in that setting, because he's still currently ill. Even if he's been released to the White House, he's st- still under treatment. So I think, I think she's going to have to be careful. So the dynamic of the president, vice president on the campaign trail, Trump has upended. Because the classic rule of thumb was the presidential candidate gave broad, grand, you know, speech and, you know, sort of taught, didn't mention his rival or didn't talk about, didn't mention the other party because he was going to the president and all this. And the vice president was the attack dog. The vice president was the super surrogate. It was the vice president who said, you know, they're all bad. They're immoral. They're this. And the message got out through the vice president, both to throw red meat to the supporters and to get the press focused on the negative aspects of the of the rival candidate. Trump has totally thrown this to the right because he is the attack dog. And Pence, if you remember in 2016, uh went into debate uh with Biden and um uh or not with Biden, I'm sorry, with um with Tim Kaine and basically invented a Trump that wasn't there. Donald Trump is going to, you know, loves Europe and Donald Trump. You know, he basically said that Trump was him and had all his policies and this is what Donald Trump was going to do. And so he was the positive and Trump was the negative. So Harris, the tradition would be for Harris to be the, you know what, Joe Biden is too nice a guy to say X, but I'm going to say it. What Trump did, and he's getting those Secret Service agents sick, and he's behaving in a way that is indicative of his presidency. He doesn't care about anybody else. He doesn't care about the children in cages. He doesn't care about the dreamers. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about anybody. He'll get you sick. He, he, He sickened the economy. He made America sick with COVID. Yes, I'm saying it, but maybe she can't. I don't know. You're saying she can't. But there is a tradition of her being able, not only being able to say it, but actually supposed to say it, like skirt the bounds of of good taste as the attack dog. Well, but let's not also, let's not forget that this is a case in which the the Democratic presidential 
candidate, the, the number one, um, told the president to shut up and called him a right. clown. But that's different. That's so, different. From what I'm saying she can say he is the virus. Not only right. does he have the virus, he is the virus. She could say it. The question is, are they sitting there frantically focus grouping and testing whether or not she should? I have no idea. And all why do we think why do we think she would adhere to a message? She has terrible message no, but discipline. She's not the one who's determining what message she's going to go with in the debate. To be let let's be fair. Look, how you behave in a debate is the is the key strategic tactical question of these campaigns because 80 billion people watched the first one. More people are going to watch this vice presidential debate now than anybody has ever watched. And it is the campaign strategy that she is going to work through. She is not an independent actor. They are, they are, they've been sitting there since Friday trying to figure out where she should go with this. So I think rather than thinking what her instincts are, you should serve, we should, we should watch very carefully to see what it is the campaign thinks, where what the what the outer limit of the rhetoric can be when it comes to Trump having corona and when they are, if they believe they are up 10, 12, 10 or 12 points, if those polls this weekend are accurate, whether they even need to deliver, you know, like a horrible knockout blow or whether she just wants to sort of like, play nice and let this go because okay well then that seems to me to what to watch for if they're if she's if she's evincing campaign strategy if she's she's uh adhering to the playbook then yeah they will probably tread water and play defense because that's all they need to do if not then she's she's listening to her instincts and her instincts are reliably terrible they are to issue implication laden uh uh, sorted allegations that she can't defend in the three-day news cycle that follows them up. She never has any sort of follow-up for any of the implications that she makes. Um, I think she's going to want to stick. I, th- I think the campaign and and her they're going to want to stick to this um, the the moral of the story of of Trump's recklessness on the virus. I think I think they're going to be um, very focused on Trump having caught it um, and being being a um, sort of walking symbol of his own recklessness. I think that, that she's never going to steer clear of that. And, and and it's going to be very finger wagging. And if there's a small bit of lip service paid to, you know, thoughts and prayers, maybe fine. But aside from that, it's going to be, it's going to be very aggressive. on. Okay. Point, so we need to talk a little more about this, but first I want to talk to you guys about our sponsor today keeps. Cause look, as guys, So much of our identity is wrapped up in our hair, from how it feels after getting a fresh cut to the way it's perfectly styled before going out. That's why when we get into our 20s and 30s and start noticing the first signs of hair loss, it definitely feels like panic time because let's face it, trust me, no guy is ever ready to go bald. Thankfully, now there's keeps which there wasn't when I was in my 20s and 30s, the simple and easy way to keep your hair. Did you know two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left. Look, you used to have to go to a doctor's office for your hair loss prescription, but thanks to Keeps Now, you can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They make it easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to pharmacy checkout lines and awkward doctor visits. 
and Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there, Keeps is the one you can buy generic. You may have tried them before, but probably never for this price. Prevention is key. Keeps treatments typically take between four to six months to see results, so it's important to act fast. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors, and more than 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatments start at just $10 a month. Plus, for a limited time, you can get your first month free. So if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash commentary to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash commentary. And thank you to Keeps for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. So let's get back to the point that I made at the beginning about the behavior of the press corps and the sort of American liberal elite in response to this news. How much of the general freak out about how we're not getting a straight story from the doctors and what's going on and Trump is uh, poisoning the Secret Service by taking the drive-by and whatever it is that they, that they said, how much of this is a genuine and legitimate expression of honest sentiment uh, about this unprecedented moment for the presidency and how much of this is the is the Twitter echo chamber of um, uh, performative rage and upset at whatever Trump uh, does. Abe, what do you think? Um, well, it's hard to tease the two apart. It's, I mean, if 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 you could come up with a degree of each, that would mean that they they the the people who themselves who are outraged know to what extent they are driving themselves crazy, and to what extent they actually have a um, legitimate um, uh, grievance with what the president is doing. And and I don't know that they know. I mean, I think there is a default. Uh, mode in which uh, everything that he does is, of course, cause for um, heads exploding. Um, but then again, it's also sim- symbiotic. He feeds off that, um, so he he pumps them up at every turn. Um, uh, so it's impossible to say. Well, and can I just point out that the uh, since you mentioned Twitter, which actually has been driving a lot of the more insane conspiracy theorizing over the weekend, Trump roid rage tweeting from his hospital bed this morning is exactly what Twitter was meant to be, right? Literally, it's the apotheosis of the platform. I mean, this is, and the reactions he will get for that and the comments on whether he should be doing it, all of that is how, that's all engagement. That's all what these platforms are meant to do. It's it's the reason behind a lot of concern about how it how it affects people's, you know, creating echo chambers and whatnot. But I think that um, you remember we talked a few weeks ago about how the press needs Trump in some ways as much as as uh, you know the, they love to hate him as entertainment, and they will miss him in a strange way if he loses this election. Um, and you know they got thirty days to to solidify their their uh, dislike and mistrust of Trump. I personally I worry about the going forward whoever is inaugurated in January the kind of mistrust the public has in the press and the 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 continued condescension with which the press treats the American public's ability to understand what's going on, those are both really negative things going forward, regardless of whether it's a Democrat or Republican in the White House. No, well let me let me ask you the 
the question is do do the press responses create uh a blowback that can benefit trump or or is this an ecosystem in which literally everybody who is involved in it has already is already uh, you know lined up and so all you can do all they're doing is enraging people who are already going to vote for trump and they're not like it's not it's not the sort of undecided voter who's going to say i think that's really mean and i don't like the way they're talking about the president who's sick and 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 the way they're insulting him or saying that he's bad for trying to get well or something like that so i'm going to vote for the president i just wonder um uh i do think that there is that there is a real prospect that uh the the echo chamber effect can lead democrats and republicans to uh, democrats excuse me democrats and the media to make one or two gigantic mistakes in tone and presentation that republicans can pounce on to say these people are just garbage. You, you're always saying Trump is garbage. These people are garbage. It hasn't happened yet, but it could. Well, I'd like to tease out from you what that would even look like. <clears throat> um, Republicans have been running against the press for a generation, maybe more. The press never shows up on the ballot in November. So there is no outlet to direct your frustration. And Republican partisans say, well, the press and the Democratic Party, they're just the same. We have almost no evidence that voters who are persuadable, who make the difference in elections, think that way. And if there was a backlash to how the Democratic complex and their allies in the press behave, it probably should have manifested in 2018 following the Kavanaugh hearings. But there's two factors at work there. One, people don't vote on Supreme Court nominations like partisans do. Partisans are animated by it. Everybody else really isn't. And two, the press is not on the ballot. The press is not somebody you can vote against. So it's just it's just in, in cohate rage that just goes into the universe without okay, any outlet. So imagine but how would that, imagine how would that in would the be? ecosystem that the press goes and goes and goes and goes and goes, and then Chuck Schumer goes too far. That that's what I mean. Or you know Richard Blumenthal, the senator from Connecticut, goes too far, or one of the squad goes too far. Wishes Trump dead. Or, you know, does, I don't know what. Is there a circumstance in which uh, the effect can redound to Trump's benefit? Where it's like, okay, you people are just, that's just wrong. Well, we so we saw some of that over the on Friday and over the weekend from obscure... Twitter accounts with blue check marks who are, you know, the chief editor at uh, American, uh, you know, Mineshaft or whatever the publication is that you've never heard of before who say, you know, I'm, I don't really do this, but I'm going to wish the guy dead. Um, and then the universe comes down around their shoulders, not because it's a sentiment they're particularly frustrated by, but they know it's impolitic. Um, so they still have their wits about them there. Uh, I, I do feel like Kamala Harris is Kamala Harris is a, uh, a ticking time bomb. And I think her instincts are in that direction. Uh, she has routinely put Democrats and her own running mate in a really bad position by reaching for rhetorical excess that pleases the base, but 
just puts them in a bad position when they have to explain themselves. The most recent example is just her going after the prospect of a vaccine being a reliable thing. You should probably be afraid of it because Donald Trump is mixing it up himself in the basement. Um, so she could probably go there. I could see her going there. But I don't see anybody else going there, especially you know, seasoned politicians. But like well, she would be the worst really. possible person to go there, based in my scenario, because of course she is on. And the that's ticket. the only and yeah, and that's okay. the only thing that would redound negatively to the right. to the ticket, as opposed to. But the, I, mean, I, I don't think I, I don't. I just don't think they see the Democratic Party as AOC. I don't, as Ilan Omar. I don't even think it would redound negatively to the ticket because I think I think you bring up a good example in in her um, sort of you know new anti vaxxer uh, angle, um, because that didn't redound negatively to the ticket. And it, it, in fact, it just kind of turned, it was a, a contributing factor in turning the public against the prospect of a vaccine. I mean, no one, it, it, you know, outside of conservatives and those who support Trump or it didn't, no one was really sort of outraged by that. It, it's, People's, well, people treated it like common sense. Cuomo built on that. Cuomo you know, then said New York will oversee the federal vaccine process because we can't trust the federal government. I, yeah, I, I blame the president for that. This came up during the debate and, and Joe Biden flailed, tried to backtrack, undermined his own running mate. It was a terrible performance right up until Joe, Donald Trump realized he hadn't spoken for 38 seconds and decided to jump in with this attack on Joe Biden's alma mater. <laughs> or whether it's a alma mater or not, as though it's a relevant thing. We could have really had a national conversation about that if, if Trump well, hadn't stepped up. Look, on. I think there, there is a central problem. You, 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 get, you, reap, what you, you reap what you sow. And um, uh, Trump uh, got himself to the presidency uh, over the course of a year in which he said that, uh, you know, uh, Ted Cruz's father killed JFK. Ted Cruz was the Zodiac killer. His wife was ugly. Carly Fiorina was ugly, this, that, you know, whatever else it was that he would say or do about uh, other people. And then um, the the demand on the part of uh, a lot of people who are in the president's base that he be treated with extraordinary empathy and personal sympathy at this moment, um, you don't, you you can't have everything, you know, if you are if you if you are a figure who makes your bones as an anti-empathy person, which is a real thing, like in other words, you know, it's it, oddly enough, I mean, it's sort of uh, Randian. It's like Ayn Randian, you know, like where she says compassion. You know, in the in the Fountainhead, there's this whole passage where where suddenly um, uh, Howard Rourke, the fount the 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 architect feels compassion for the man who was trying to kill him and he's he's choked he be, he gets physically sick compassion makes him nauseated and ill and because it's so weak it's such a it's so weakening and it's so destructive of resolve that the seduction is literally makes him want to vomit right that is trump trump is a figure who is like enough with all this empathy. You know, I'm going to do good things for this country, and 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 enough with all this like performative sympathy. The hell with that. And then you get people. It's like, how dare you say this about you know how there was uh, various people on the right. It's like how it's disgusting that you would question the president. This and it's like he he can't have it. He doesn't get. 
he can't get the now by the way this doesn't go to the whole question of whether or not you should pray for his recovery and david french wrote a very good piece about this not myself being a christian but i'm saying from a christian perspective why you're even supposed to pray for leaders you hate or think are are bad um but I'm saying this notion that somehow he deserves the same reservoir of public support for a time of tribulation. He has he has surrendered that. That that's true. But I would just just push back a little and say we have a lot of performative empathy on the other ticket too. The only reason anybody's buying the Joe Biden Kamala Harris performative empathy act is that Trump is so anti empathy. And I'm sorry, but I, I really to go back to how Har- how Harris is going to deal with this on Tuesday. I mean, she's. I think it's I, Wednesday. I apologize. By the way. It's Wednesday, not Tuesday. But okay. oh, it's Wednesday. Sorry, sorry for Wednesday's debate. She's like the Gretchen Wieners, right? Of the of the of the race. So this is the character in Mean Girls who's kind of an empty shell. And just wants to be accepted for whatever the the sort of alpha girl is at the moment, and she'll switch her loyalties and whatever and try to play people off. She's not stupid, but she's kind of empty. And I do feel, I mean, when Joe Biden does his empathy shtick, there is something there. He actually has suffered a kind of uh, the kinds of losses that that uh, I think people can connect to. And you know, as we mentioned before, when he talked about his son's uh, drug addiction during the last debate, that was quite moving, and a lot of Americans understood that. I've never gotten that sense from Harris. Now Pence is is like a robot, so I mean, she's again, she's playing off a great opponent in, in, in that sense. But the, the empathy thing, I mean, I know a lot of Americans say they want it, but I don't buy it when it comes from Harris any more than I buy it now when Trump supporters claim we should have it for him. It's just, right. it's performative on both sides. Well, that's why she can go, she can go in 15 different directions. <clears throat> and uh, maybe I, I'll just reiterate that uh, we will get a sense of where the campaign thinks it is based on the direction that she goes in. If they think that they pretty much have it in the bag, she doesn't have to be that pointed, sharp, or negative. And if they are still interested in either dealing a knockout blow or or they they need they think they really need to spin up their own base's enthusiasm, and I don't mean Democratic Party enthusiasm writ large. I mean their base's enthusiasm then she could be really tough in a manner that will make you gasp. Um, I mean, the one moment of real unquestioned political success that she had, that is the reason that she's on the ticket, was the moment that she went right at Joe Biden's forehead. And, and you know, something that he should have been able to anticipate and didn't, that she would say, you tried to deny me the right to a good education. That little girl was me, and then he just didn't have anything to say to her. So you may say that she has bad political instincts, and she does because obviously she was literally never able to have a single other moment after that. Well, no, that attack is the reason why she's not at the top of the ticket today, because she had the most momentum of any candidate in that race out of a moment. And that moment fizzled on her because she had no follow through. She couldn't say that I support busing. She couldn't say that Joe Biden was a racist. It was a moment that was to exist in its own self-contained fashion. And then it fizzled. Now, I think that they poll tested that that line. Do I think they poll tested? Will you join me in the effort to kick Donald Trump off Twitter? No, (laughs) that just felt really good. And it was a disaster. Well, they it made her look impotent and foolish and trite. Okay, so 
Uh, we have this event on Wednesday. Uh, we have uh, – somebody pointed out to me, which I, I hadn't realized, uh, that this notion that Trump and, you know, there won't be any more debates because Trump is, you know, Trump and Biden can't be in the same room is belied by the fact that the that the debate that inaugurated the modern presidential debate, Nixon-Kennedy, they were in different places, which I – I've actually – the weird thing is I watched that debate and I did somehow totally missed that, that Nixon was in L.A. and Johnson was in, in D.C. Um, and by the way, Nixon was sick. Nixon had just had surgery because he had be- damaged his leg. A door had closed on his leg and he had to have some kind of surgery and he had been in the hospital, which is what explains which is apparently what explains his pallor and his his sweat, the famous sweatiness and needing of a shave or whatever uh, that that you hear is the reason that he he lost that that debate. Um, final point here, uh, since we we do talk a lot about polls, uh, the polls are really bad for Trump, and the polls are really bad for Trump. It got worse for Trump after the debate. And we don't really have polling after COVID yet, uh, after the diagnosis uh, of any of any moment. Um, so, again, signs to watch out for in the next two weeks, I think, are whether the Democratic senators who are running uh, and are apparently seeing some degradation in their own position because of degradation in the president's position, which suggests a wave is forming and that they are, there's a national problem facing Republicans in general. We will, if they start trying to figure out how to go their own way or openly criticize the president or do something like that, uh, that will be a marker to watch for as to whether or not the election is out of Trump's grasp, I think. Can they do that? Because then, of course, they risk losing their own base vote. I don't know. Noah, what do you think? Um, yeah, I I don't know. <laughs> That's a bad answer. I don't know. I kind of don't. Uh, I'm of the impression that you know, what after this NBC News Wall Street Journal poll came out over the weekend showed a 14 point gap in favor of the president, everything moving in, or in favor of Joe Biden, everything moving in the wrong direction, Trump under 40 percent. Uh, you know that we had a 14 point gap poll in uh, in October of 2016, too. And look what happened. You know, there's plenty of events yet to play out. And there are there will be. Um, but the stability of the race has been predicated on the president losing ground with a lot of the constituencies that he could pretty much rely on in 2016, not just the white working class vote that we, you know, that the populist wing of the party thinks the future of the GOP is predicated on, but seniors losing ground with seniors and it's in, in the double digits. And that's GOP bread and butter right there. Um, you lose that you you've lost not just the presidency, but the, the GOP's you know, political base. Uh, and I don't see that moving. It, it was, you know, maybe it was a blip over the summer, but it's not now. It's a trend. Um, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. So, yeah. Um, the other interesting thing about that poll uh, that a lot of people uh, objected to 
was the NBC News Wall Street Journal poll is that it's a poll of registered voters rather than likely voters. And the whole idea is that likely voter at this point, you should only be uh, polling likely voters. And when you poll registered voters or adults, those polls will tend to skew Democratic. And so therefore, it's a uh, they're doing it to get this more dramatic result, and it's not right. And the NBC News, Wall Street Journal pollsters explain that in their view, because interest in the election is so high and because they are anticipating record turnout, the distinction that is usually drawn between registered voters and likely voters is beginning to disappear if not disappearing entirely, and that by screening for likely voters, you might be missing the larger component of the election because you are you are limiting the voter pool that you are asking about rather than broadening it. And because they, so they are seeing uh, every piece of data we have suggests record turnout. Record turnout would be somewhere between 140 and 150 million. And um, I think it's fair and that there is one theory of the race that says that record turnout will help Trump because he will have pulled all kinds of people who have never voted before to the polls uh, in this. It's not a shy Tory effect. It's a new voter, unvoter effect. And they will m- make the difference in the three states in particular, but they are kind of invisible to pollsters. And the other is that uh, that what we're going to see is just a, a democratic tsunami. That the that the uh, the enthusiasm effect <clears throat> is the 62 million Democrats who voted in 2018 and the largest turnout in midterm modern midterm history. Uh, adding another 10, 12 million people to that, and then it's just you know they're just going go you know they're just going out to party. Yeah, we should emphasize that point. First, NBC Wall Street Journal is not alone in this assessment. Monmouth University has been putting out a lot of these like weird models that emphasize high turnout and low turnout and, you know, screened and unscreened because nobody really knows, um, which is good. You know, it's good to emphasize what you don't know and provide a lot of options in the event that things don't pan out the way your predictions pan out because we don't really know. Second, as you say, you know, if your theory of the case is that there's a lot of voters out there who don't respond to pollsters and who are going to show up at the polls and they're going to deliver an outcome that the polls aren't looking for, you should want the loosest possible screen, right? Because that'll capture the voter that you think is out there that otherwise isn't ha- doesn't want to respond maybe, or is uh, you know, a, a, a voter without any voting history, so they wouldn't make it through a likely voter screen. You know, that's the sort of thing that the, the people who say the polls are all wrong and Trump is going to win predicate their case on, right? And if that's not, that's not happening then what else is your case? I, anyway, you know, part of the problem here is we have, uh, I think we're 29 days from the election and um, uh, there are are two and only two possibilities. One possibility is that the election has already been won by one or the other. And that Biden having won the election is visible and obvious through the polls. And Trump having won the election is by definition invisible to the polls because it will involve something new and stark and historic and 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 uh, game changing in terms of having awakened a sleeping giant. 
And the other is that unforeseeable events are going to take place that will uh, ma- that will uh, mean that something may happen different or may shake up the results of the race. If that's the case, though, that can really only, or in other words, that the race is far closer and that it's a jump ball either way and that events in the next four weeks and one day will will tell. Of course, you know, um, I don't know how many votes are going to be cast by, let's say, two weeks from from today in the early voting. I think the number is already close to 4 million, which, of course, if 150 million people vote is a pretty small number, right? It's like 3% or something like that, 4%. I don't know. Uh, see how good I am at math? I think it's actually hot. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, but, uh, you know, and assume that the, those those kind of break either way. I am i don't know. I, I'm just saying, like, if 25, 30 million people vote, let's say, by the by the middle of October, and something happens at the end of October, too sorry, you know, it's like this right now. So are we going to actually have a, a serious discussion about early voting when 4 million people voted before they found out that the president had COVID? We, we shouldn't be voting now. The hell with you people with your destruction of election day. Like we shouldn't be voting now. I just I just got my mail-in ballot actually, and I had an interesting discussion with my kids because they were like, "Well, what are you going to do? I mean, because what if he dies and you've already cast your vote, or what if this or that? What are that?" And, and it's just like the, the possibilities, even to children, are clear about early voting. I mean, and it is something we should talk about. Um, the convenient does the convenience outweigh the potential costs to? a truly informed electorate casting his vote on election day. I would much rather we just make election day a national holiday so that people can just go yeah. vote on that yeah. day. But Or, I mean, if we're serious about this and the, 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 have a serious discussion with a constitutional amendment that makes election day a two-day event or something like that, like you that that you could do and then you really don't have an excuse. You have 48 hours, not 20 or whatever. You don't even have 24 hours because – you know, like in New York State, the polls were from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., so that's 15 hours to vote. What if you made it 48 hours and the polling places were made open all night and all that? You know, you could, you could, have, we could have a serious discussion of whether or not the polling system, as it stands, it, particularly in a presidential election year, um, can't be, will not be overwhelmed by the sheer numbers of people who now vote in the United States. That is understandable. Just an aside, if you made it 48 hours, then people would treat it as a mini vacation, book flights and not a known. But then you would have to put in the, you'd have to put in the, in the, you'd have to put it in the, yeah, you'd you'd have to ground all planes. How about (laughs) that? Um, Anyway, I don't know. But um, so there we go. Okay. Well, well, we'll have uh, more to say tomorrow. So for Christine, Abe and Noam, John Pothortz, keep the candle burning.